Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. Coming soon, statewide foster care licensing standards. In 2021, Safe Passage helped pass legislation that lowered legal barriers to becoming a foster parent. We successfully advocated to include statewide mandatory licensing standards in the bill. The process of developing these standards is underway, and they will be implemented next July. The new process will assess candidates based on their ability to provide nurturing parenting today rather than focusing on past mistakes, living arrangements, and other factors less relevant to the child's needs. The Child Welfare League of America field guide that is linked to in the blog describes essential skills and qualities for caregivers, particularly an ability to put the needs of the child first and a commitment to fostering children who have challenging trauma-induced conducts such as meltdowns or inappropriate sexual behaviors. If successful, this initiative will improve the quality of foster care while also supporting more kinship placements and culturally appropriate foster homes. The story of this legislation goes back to 2020, when the Institute to Transform Child Welfare at the Mitchell Hamlin School of Law proposed legislation that would lower barriers to becoming a foster parent, barriers that were based on crimes committed at some time in the past. The overall problem, as articulated by parent advocates, was that relatively trivial crimes that occurred years ago such as food stamp fraud or forging a check, would prevent individuals, particularly relatives, from becoming caregivers. The proposed bill, however, also meant to remove many violent crimes as disqualifiers for becoming foster parent after a period of as little as five years. This included homicide other than in the first degree, shootings in support of a gang, first-degree arson, first-degree armed robbery, and others. So some of these were unacceptable to child advocates, and the resulting negotiation took more than a year before we produced a bill together that both conservatives in the Senate, which, as you may know at that time and up until the upcoming 2023 state legislative session, has been controlled for years by Republicans, and progressives in the House could agree to. The resulting legislation retained lifetime disqualifiers for some crimes, such as first-degree murder. It eliminated 15 and 7-year disqualifiers entirely and replaced them with a 20-year disqualifier for a handful of very violent crimes as well as for termination of parental rights, with then most violent felonies going into a 5-year disqualification category. 
Now, it's important to know that sometimes potential foster or kinship foster placements would be disqualified if a member of the household had this criminal past rather than the primary person who was applying to be the caregiver. So that was a situation that everybody agreed needed to be addressed. Some of the reduced disqualifications were still problematic to child advocates even after the negotiations. These included, for example, only a five-year disqualifier for most crimes related to controlled substances, for example, running a meth lab, less than first-degree convictions for crimes related to the abuse of a vulnerable adult, pimping, robbery, witness tampering, second-degree sex trafficking, felony-level harassment or stalking, shooting in a public transit facility, second-degree or lower assault of a minor, serious and recurring maltreatment of a child or an adult in another state, and malicious punishment of a child. Nevertheless, we and other child advocates supported the overall objectives of the legislation, which were to make it possible for adults with a criminal past to become foster parents if they had left that past behind and were currently at a place in their lives where they would be a good or even the best option for placement for the child. The underlying issues that the current exclusions created were that they disproportionately affected potentially positive kinship placements as well as the ability to recruit foster homes, particularly in communities of color. Given that, all things considered, it's highly preferable to have a child in a placement in their own community and culture. It seemed necessary to take a different approach to determining who could become eligible to be a foster parent. That particularly applies to potential kinship placements, which can maintain relationships that the child has and potentially reduce the trauma of being removed from their home. I once read, and I wish I'd saved the article, that three-quarters of African-American men in Minneapolis have at least one past felony. So under the exclusions that existed at the time, that would eliminate any household where one of these men resided, even if they weren't themselves the proposed foster parent. So the question became, how to achieve the goals of this legislation without exposing children to potential harm. By adding the requirements to the legislation that the State Department of Human Services develop mandatory statewide standards for foster care licenses, we hope to establish guardrails for the process overall, while still creating the ability to evaluate potential foster or kinship caregivers based on who they are now rather than what was in their past. For this, I turned to the Child Welfare League of America's Field Guide to Child Welfare, which has numerous examples of assessment questions and responses that would get at the issue of whether a person would be able to nurture a child in foster care. There is a link to this chapter of the Field Guide in the blog and in this narrative script for the blog, both of which are on our website. Or you can search for it where it currently resides, which is on the website of the Institute for Human Services in Ohio. The assessment process described in the field guide attempts to get at whether the prospective caregiver first has a realistic understanding of what's going to be involved in caring for a foster child, particularly given that most children going to foster care today have been left in situations of chronic abuse and neglect 
for such long periods of time that they have been traumatized and often exhibit challenging behaviors. These may include the inability to respond to or express affection, a lack of appreciation for the efforts of the caregiver, frequent meltdowns, inappropriate sexual behavior, self-harm, and potentially outbursts of violence, among others. It is not as if these challenges are foreign to the state. Many of the principles articulated in the field guide are also in state directives, particularly what is called MAPSI, or the Minnesota Assessment of Parenting for Child and Youth Practice Guide, which is used to help counties assess prospective placements. Also, there is some training of foster parents provided by the Child Welfare Training Academy. So what appears to be needed at this point is to implement these principles in a thorough and practical way throughout all the counties in Minnesota. In addition to evaluating whether the proposed foster parent has the willingness to deal with difficult situations and is willing to be trained so they can develop some skills in this area, the field guide looks at motivation. The questioning helps reveal whether the prospective caregivers are focused primarily on the child or on what they might get out of fostering. One example of appropriate motivation in the guide is a prospective parent who says that they have worked with special needs children before and really like helping them grow stronger. In contrast, a general statement like, quote, I like children and would like to help them, unquote, might not be sufficient. Someone can help children by tutoring them or volunteering at the local rec center. So this kind of response needs some more probing to see if the person is ready for the magnitude of the challenge. Other responses that may not be ideal include benefits to the person's own children in having a foster child or that their church is promoting some form of community service. The prospective foster parent may still be an adequate placement, but may not yet have really thought through what their role is. Similarly, the assessment gets at whether the stress of a difficult child might be more than any particular family can handle based on their own internal dynamics. Another really important consideration is child safety. In kinship placements in particular, it is too often the case that the kinship caregiver allows the bio parents who have been harming the child could, to continue to have access to that child. So a critical component is whether the prospective caregiver understands the importance of the safety plan that is going to be put in place and has the willingness and ability to implement it. Other important factors include whether everyone in the family is involved or maybe one parent says they're willing to do it but sees the other as primarily the one responsible. Related to this, rigid ideas about the roles of household members or maybe a moralistic attitude towards the behaviors that are likely to show up could be a red flag. In addition, prospective parents are asked questions that get at, for example, whether they will be hurt or angry if a child does not return affection or doesn't appreciate what they're doing. If they don't take those behaviors personally, or if they do, but they're able to recognize their reactions to these situations and at least intellectually deal with it, they may be able to handle the difficulties that are going to come up. The questions also elicit whether prospective parents are likely to deal with difficult behaviors by shaming and punishment, 
rather than by using the skills that they should be trained in, such as attempting to de-escalate, to redirect, and to see these situations as opportunities to help the child grow. And in particular, a belief in harsh physical punishment would be a serious concern. The field guide assesses responses to these questions at several levels. One is the desired or ideal response. One meets minimum expectations. And the third is basically red flags. Overall, since no family is perfect, and since some weight must be given to attempting to keep the child in the extended family and community, these factors need to be balanced and considered as a whole. But whether the ultimate standards in Minnesota utilize this particular field guide or something equivalent, a process of this nature gets directly at the objective of the legislation, which is to evaluate prospective foster and kinship caregivers based on whether they can provide a nurturing, supportive, well-informed, and safe placement for a child sufficient to keep that child stabilized and potentially work through the trauma that the child has experienced and hopefully resume their growth as an individual, healthy human being. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. If you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at safepassageforchildren.org. There you can sign up for our email list, read all of our eBrief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.